you'd already click it on. You're a good man. Appreciate that. Good morning, everyone. Very, very good to see you. A lovely, beautiful morning this morning, and and uh, just grateful to be able to be with you. I, I think I was somewhat remiss uh, in the busyness of last night and our opening and, and so forth, and not to really uh, express the gratitude that both Vicki and I have uh, for the invitation, for the opportunity to be able to be with you for these few short days that we're going to be together and as we're looking at these lessons regarding uh, the essence of Christ-centered commitment. And I want to give a very special thanks, particularly to, of course, uh, Mark and Carrie for their hospitality, their kindness, uh, the love, uh, the things. We, we got into town, actually, um, on, I guess it was Tuesday, Tuesday evening it was, and, and we had good flights coming out. That was not really a problem, even out of uh, San Jose, California. Let me see, I think we went to Salt Lake and then to Memphis, and they picked us up, and we're just grateful for that, and, uh, and to be able to be in their lovely home. Uh, everything's just about perfect with that home, with the exception of no water this morning. And we knew we were in trouble, and Vicki didn't wake me up, and, and, and by the time she was doing a little reading and went to use the restroom, and, and I was already out last night, and so she didn't tell me that, boy, something's up with the water, but then I got up in the middle of the night, and I thought something's up with the water, and... And I and I said, well, we'll find out what happens. And, well, something's up with the water. <laughs> and poor Mark, and she says, I can hear somebody walking outside. They got all that gravel, crunch, crunch, crunch. And so she got up and locked both doors. I didn't tell you that. <laughs> she said, I don't know what's going on around here. But but she locked both doors. And, and <laughs> so anyway, the pump went out. And, you know, uh, that's the... That's, there's a blessing living in the country, and sometimes there are challenges. My wife was raised on a ranch, and she says this just took her back. <laughs> you know, she was. I mean, she was raised out on a farm on a ranch, and, and she remembers a, the pump going out, and she remembers dead squirrels falling in, into the well, and I should, all the whole nine yards, right? So anyway, but we are going to be fine, and it's great, and it's just awesome to be with you. I mean that from the bottom of my heart. I'd like you to take your Bibles and turn over to Philippians, Philippians chapter 1. We're looking at Philippians chapter 3 a little bit. Man, i got so much room up here, Sandra. Sandra, I'm telling you, it's wonderful. And, you know, maybe I can be the real me today, but in any case. But I want you to turn to Philippians chapter 1. And as we continue to explore uh, Christ-centered commitment, um, we're going to be looking at two principal things today in two lessons, and we're going to be talking about enlargement in just a couple of moments, uh, and to begin this lesson, and then after we have a break and meet again, I think you said at 10.30, we'll be looking at Christ, the essence of Christ-centered commitment is also evangelistic. And so I want you to be really keying in, though, at this particular moment, and thinking about the idea of enlarging, uh, could be honoring, um, it certainly is going to be to magnify. And the little question I want to ask you this morning to begin with is kind of what kind of translations that we have out there today. And, uh, I mean, anybody reading from the New King James Version here? Okay, there's a good number of you. So, uh, anybody using the ESV? Okay. Wanda's got the ESV and Harry Franklin does there. It's good to have you. And then... And uh, there might be some others in the American Standard. And that being the case, in fact, I went ahead and preparing for that. And I wanted to anyway, and I went ahead and copied out here in the New King James Version. I see that's kind of the, we'll call that the majority text today. The New King James Version, the majority text. And uh, 
Where we want to pick up here in Philippians chapter 1 and verse 12, if you drop down, the Apostle Paul uh, writing this letter to the Philippian brethren. And we're going to see here that in many respects that this is an emotional statement that Paul is making. And we're going to see that he even is feeling of a bit of what we might call confliction. He is conflicted in a couple of different matters. But in verse 12, he says, But I want you to know, brethren, that the things which happened to me have actually turned out for the furtherance of the gospel, so that it has become evident to the whole palace guard and to all the rest that my chains are in Christ. And most of the brethren in the Lord having become confident by my chains, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ even from envy and strife, and some also from goodwill. The former preach Christ from selfish ambition, not sincerely, supposing to add affliction to my chains, says Paul. Verse 17, but the latter out of love, knowing that I am appointed for the defense of the gospel. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. And in this I rejoice, yes, and will rejoice. Let's take a break there just for a moment, if you will. In this emotional statement that Paul makes to these brethren in Philippi, of whom he had a tremendous relationship, just to remind you that in Paul's relationship to the brethren of Philippi, that during Paul's evangelistic, or some refer to missionary journeys of Paul, there were times that Philippi, the congregation in Philippi, was the only church that was really helping or supporting Paul financially in his, tra- in his travels. Uh, he's going to make mention of that uh, really uh, in chapter 1 later on, but definitely we'll come back to it in chapter 4. But he has this very special relationship with these good brethren. Uh, the church of Philippi was strong. In the opening verse, we find is a congregation comprised of, of bishops and deacons. It's a fully organized congregation following that pattern that we see in the New Testament church in this autonomous group. Paul has a lot of respect, a lot of confidence in them, and a lot of appreciation because of what they have done for him. And he wants them to know of how much he loves them and appreciates them, but he also wants them to know that he's in, still in a tough situation. When Paul has written this letter, we know that this is during his first imprisonment. The incarceration that was a house arrest that lasted for a while while he was in the city of Rome. And yet he's given opportunity to write to congregations and to individuals, as he did. And we know that this is one, is identified as one of the prison epistles of Paul. And so as we look at this, though Paul is incarcerated, he rejoiced in the fact, you see, in verses 12 and 13, as we've already read, that it actually, that this incarceration, that his chains actually turned out, he says, for the furtherance of the gospel to the extent that it even became apparent, evident to the the palace guard. Uh, You may have a translation that speaks of the imperial guard. And we look at this, that that this is Rome, the city of Rome, and where he's incarcerated, and yet he has opportunity, and he's going to, as long as he can, he's going to preach, and he's going to teach in any way that he possibly can. And it just amazes me that when we look at, at Paul's fervor, his intensity, and, his, and, and, and that he's going to preach that he had impacted even these Roman imperial guards. That's fascinating, and that's encouraging to us, and it was encouraging to others. And so, furthermore, we look at this, 
and we see that his chains were in Christ. He's, he, he's in prison, and he's really under this Roman custody. We know that the Jewish leadership had wanted him dead because they looked at Paul as nothing other than a traitor to the Jewish faith. And yet, he makes known that his chains are in Christ, that, that he becomes a prisoner of Christ, and that he's going to do that he submits himself totally to Christ, and regardless of being a free man or an imprisoned man, he's going to preach Christ. And that should be encouraging to us. It was encouraging to the brethren of that time. Because gaining confidence in Paul's change, you look at verse 14, he says most of the brethren there became much more bold to speak the word of God without fear. You know, I thought a lot about that. And as I think about that, and we look at this, and, and those brethren would look at this, and they'd say, our, our beloved Paul, our, 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 this apostle, this man of whom we have such a great affinity with, the, the Philippian brethren no doubt loved him tremendously. And as they hear that though he is incarcerated, though he's in chains, that he's still preaching and teaching and being positive for the gospel of Christ, and they're free, you know what that does? That gives them even more courage and more boldness themselves and say, you know what? If he can do it in that circumstance, we can certainly do it in our circumstance. I want us to think about that today as well. Do you suppose that there's a lot of places right now that it's difficult to preach the gospel openly and freely? You know, we know what all what's going on. For example, take the Ukraine and all that's going on, and there are a number of Christians there, and I know I know some preachers, and I know some brethren, so a good, very good friend of mine that has spent a great deal of time in the Ukraine. And I'll tell you, even when times were better, it was difficult to preach the gospel. And now we know of brethren there. It's just difficult for them to assemble and to worship, let alone to all of a sudden have free course to preach the gospel. Here's the amazing thing. And Vicky's been keeping up with one particular brother very closely in his reports. And how many baptisms have there been in just the last few weeks? You know why? Well, there's a couple of things. Some because people realize that, tell you what, life is tentative. Life can be very short. But the other thing is that when they're seeing the courage of faithful Christians that the gospel is being preached, people are livened up by that. And there's some that are becoming all the more bold because of it. And, and I look at it and I think, how parallel is that to what we have in Philippians? Paul says, I'm in chains. But what he appreciates, brethren knowing about that, he doesn't want them to say, oh, poor Paul. He really doesn't want that. He wants them to become bold themselves to take courage and to do the right thing. And so we look at this. Paul rejoices. And I'll tell you the other thing about Paul. And, and did you notice that what you have in verses 15 and 18, that there were some that opposed Paul. And, and they're, they're Christians evidently, and they're preaching the gospel evidently. And he speaks about those that are opposed and, and he's opposed by those with more than questionable motives in their own preaching. And yet Paul rejoiced. He says that whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is preached. I, mean, I, I want to tell you, that's an attitude to have. That there may be brethren that whatever, don't like me for whatever reasons. And I guess there could be a lot of good reasons not to like me, I suppose. And maybe they, maybe they don't think a lot of me. And maybe they might be opposed to me, but you know what? And, and their attitude could be wrong. But if they're having opportunity and they're preaching the gospel to people and people are coming to the Lord, you know what's most important? Not me. What's most important is Christ. 
and the gospel been preached. This is a very interesting statement that Paul makes that demands of us, ladies and gentlemen, the right attitude. And don't forget what's most important. It's not about me. It's not about you. It wasn't about Paul. It's always about Christ. Does that make sense? It is always about Christ. Let's pick up reading, though, at verse 19. We stopped at 18. Look at verse 19. So after saying this, Paul says, For I know that this will turn out for my deliverance through your prayer and the supply of the Spirit of Jesus Christ. According to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness as always, so now also Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, to die is gain. But if I live on in the flesh, this will mean fruit from my labor, yet what I shall choose I cannot tell. For I am hard pressed between the two, having a desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And being confident of this, I know that I shall remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy of faith, that your rejoicing for me may be more abundant in Jesus Christ by my coming to you again. And he longed to be able to be with his brethren again, personally, face to face. You know, we look at this, and in all of this, we see again that Paul is really emotionally conflicted about a couple of things. And not about his faith, and not about the hope that he had, and not even about the purpose of which he was to fulfill in preaching the gospel. His confliction, the conflict as we've seen in verse 21, we just read it. He says, for to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. You think about that. Paul went through a lot of hardship. And he did that because of his faith and his commitment, his determination to preach the gospel. And in difficult times and in difficult areas geographically and with people breathing down his neck that really didn't want him doing what he was doing and some that wanted him dead. And he looks at this. And he says, I look at my life and I'm pressed between these two things, kind of between a rock and a hard spot, we may say. He says, to live is Christ. And I'll tell you, I love that attitude. And that needs to be our attitude. That Paul's attitude was that as long as I have breath, as long as I have the ability in any way possible to live as Christ, he's going to preach Christ, he's going to live Christ, Christ is going to be the center of his life, and he's going to do everything that he can for others to see that. He said to die is gain. To die is gain. We all know in Paul's travels, you remember, there was a time that he was once stoned and left for dead. He didn't die, but he was left for dead. There are plenty of people, again, that wanted him dead. And he says, to die is gain. And, and you look at that, and, and imagine to have that kind of hope, and that's where we need to be as well, where we know that if we close our eyes in death, they will only be to immediately be open in paradise. Is that not a nice thought? To live is Christ. To die is gain. I hope that every one of us can have that same determination and confidence. That something should happen to any one of us today to understand to die is gain. Not everybody can say that. And not everybody really truly has that hope. We, we, we get that. Furthermore, he talks about this and, 
And he says, when I'm hard pressed between the two in verses 23 and 24, having a desire to depart and to be with Christ. Paul's being honest. He says, there's my desire, which is far better. Nevertheless, to remain in the flesh is more needful for you. And Paul's not a selfish individual in this. I think many of us have probably experienced some of these emotions. And I've known good, good, faithful Christians, but people that have gone through such hardship, and maybe it's because of even physical problems, maladies, disease, and they find themselves in dealing with pain every day and in situations that are just tough. Then I know of some others that have actually been in, 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 in places and areas of tribulation in their life because of persecution, because of hardship, where it is not easy to be a Christian on the day-to-day basis, and they look at it, and in and, and, and any one of those cases, they look at it and say, you know what, it'd just be better to be able to go on to the next, to the next life. Maybe some of you have experienced that. I, I remember my brother calling me just just months before he did pass away. And he had just been going through so much misery because of physical pain and the quality of life that had just deteriorated just horribly. And he called me one day, and we were talking for a while, and he says, Brent, just pray, just pray that the Lord take me. And he was only 62 years old. Been serving as an elder in the church. Good man, good preacher. Always claimed that he prepared all my sermon outlines. But good man. And we talked for a while and we hung up and not even a minute went by and the phone rang again, caller ID, and I said, my brother, and I said, yeah, yo, bro, what's up? And all he said was, yea, though I walk through the valley of the shout of death, I will fear no evil. I want to tell you, That's hope. That's confidence. And he looked at it to die his game. It's a marvelous thing that Paul expresses here. But here's what I want you to be thinking about as we move along in this text. More than anything else, what did Paul want others to see in him? And we look at verse 20. Please look at verse 20. And again, you're going to, there's going to be some variation for those that have the ESV or maybe those that might have the New American Standard or perhaps the NIV. But in reading this, according to, to my earnest expectation, verse 20, according to my earnest expectation and hope, that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always, so now also, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. I want you to think about this as we're going to be speaking and addressing this whole principle, this concept of the essence of Christ-centered commitment is enlargement. And he says, Christ will be magnified in my body. Now, some of you that have translations, it'll say, it'll use the word instead magnify, it's going to use the word honored. You may have a translation that says that that it will be the word exalted. The idea of exalted is lifted high. The idea of honored can mean a lot of different things. But we really have a transliterated form when you look at the New King James or the King James Version that when he, said, when he says, Christ will be magnified in my body. Christ is going to be enlarged indeed. He's going to be magnified. Now, that's an interesting little word study etymologically. And, and the, the word that you simply have there in the cognate form is megaluno. Just think about that, megaluno, megas. Large, big, right? Mega. 
And Paul uses this word. It's a word that's found only seven times in the, the Greek text of the New Testament. Seven times. As a matter of fact, remember when Jesus was being very descriptive about the hypocritical Pharisees in Matthew 23? And he gives that scathing rebuke because of the hypocrisy. And he said they're like whited sepulchers and, you know, and all those things of which were, were, were not very complimentary because of their hypocrisy. But you remember in when he's describing even how they dressed in Matthew 23, verse 5, of how they enlarged the borders of their garments so they could be seen at great distances. Oh, look who's coming. You know, the Pharisees. And the very word that Jesus employed there was the same word. It's megaluno, megaluno, to magnify, to enlarge, to make something bigger. And this is exactly what Paul does. And so when we look at this verse again, verse 20, when he says, according to my earnest expectation and hope that in nothing I shall be ashamed, but with all boldness, as always so now, also Christ will be magnified in my body. How? Well, or when? Whether by life or by death. To live is Christ, but Christ is going to be magnified. And even in death, and that would take us to 2 Timothy chapter 4, as I alluded to briefly last evening, the very last letter extended, the Apostle Paul, the last chapter that we have written of any of his writings, of definitely at least 13 letters of the New Testament. And there he says that the time of my departure is at hand. And it was, and he suffered martyrdom. He was put to death. He was beheaded, either by no... By the, late, by the latest in the spring of 68, perhaps by the winter of 67 AD. But the Apostle Paul was executed. He was beheaded. He was killed for the cause of Christ. But even in the way that he lived his life and the way that he experienced death, I want to tell you what. Here we are. Some nearly 2,000 years later, and do we see the magnification of the example of this man who lived in Christ, for Christ, because of Christ. Do we see that? What about us? You see, how did Paul magnify or enlarge Christ in his body? And it certainly was not by self-aggrandizement. It was never a matter of Paul just lifting himself up. It was never a matter of Paul just trying to make himself the center. It was not about Paul again. It was about Christ. He dedicated his life to the cause of Jesus Christ, regardless of the consequences, which included both emotional and bodily persecution. Brethren, as important as discipleship is, this commitment that we have, what we see within that, we must see how, in, how significant it must become in our lives that Jesus Christ is magnified or enlarged in our lives every day. No matter where we are, in every venue or aspect of life, Christ needs to be enlarged. I ask you right now, very personally, is Christ magnified in your life? You see, we, we want a lot of things. We want to grow personally as Christians, do we not as individuals? Don't we want to be a stronger Christian today than we were yesterday and hopefully even a stronger Christian tomorrow? Don't we want our light to shine? Don't we want to make a difference and grow and advance in the cause of Christ? We want that. But I want to tell you, it doesn't happen by accident. It just doesn't happen automatically. Do we want the congregation to grow? Grow spiritually indeed. Grow in knowledge. Grow in unity. Grow in love. But I'll tell you what, that, that won't happen by accident either. Do we want the, the congregation to grow by virtue of number and bringing souls to Christ? And we're going to be talking about evangelism in the second lesson today. And we, we say yes, yes, yes to all of those questions. 
but it brings us back to the basic question of this hour. Is Christ Jesus magnified in your life? When your neighbors, when they look at you and they talk with you and they're they thinking about you or talk to other people about you is what stands out and, and they say, I'll tell you what, I've known that Evan for a while. He's a, that man's, he's a Christian. That man tries to be a godly man. Isn't that what you want people to think about us and to say about us? And about each and every one of us? And it's all about magnification. Not magnifying self, enlarging self, but enlarging Jesus Christ in our lives. And it doesn't have to be in the neighborhood only. It needs to be everywhere again. You think of the venue. It's what needs to be. How can we enlarge Christ in our lives today? And there are just these three principles that I want to share with you as we look at this. And these three principles are going to be, and here's a little more alliteration if you will, but identification, information, and influence. Identification, information, and influence. And so let's look at this as we begin by talking about enlarging Christ by virtue of identification. All right? Now, turn over to Galatians chapter 6. Let's leave Philippians. And turn over to Galatians chapter 6, if you will. And we're going to go to the end of this epistle. As Paul writes this letter to the churches of Galatia. Galatia is a province, of course, not a city. It's a province, and there were multiple congregations in that geographical area. And as Paul has dealt with a lot of different important subjects, issues even that had arisen, a lot dealing with the Judaizing teachers and so forth, but here again is Paul that that speaks about his own personal relationship with Christ and what it meant to him and what he wanted to demean with the others with whom he came in contact. And so in Paul's closing statement, you will notice in Galatians 6.17, and I have it written out as well, but he says, From now on, let no man trouble me, for I bear in my body the marks. I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And that's another interesting word study, by the way used but just a handful of times in the biblical text, and we have this Greek word stigmata. Stigmata. And I suppose what may stick out in your mind is you think of a stigma, right? Of a stigma. And that can mean a lot of different things, be used in a lot of different ways in our own vernacular today. But he speaks about this stigmata. It originally noted, if you look at the etymology of this Greek word, even in classical Grecian literature and times that predated Christ, going back a few centuries even before the birth of Christ, and we have this classical Grecian language. And so historically, that is etymologically in the roots of this word, that stigmata originally denoted a a tattoo mark or a mark burnt in like a brand. Uh, There were slaves And in those simple situations in which there were slaves in these various cultures and civilizations, and many times to designate ownership, these slaves were actually what was put upon them was a stigmata. It was it was it was a brand, is what it was. Horribly, terribly. It was a branding. And it showed identification, ownership even. we understand how that has been used through the generations of all civilizations of the branding of cattle. As I mentioned a moment ago that my wife Vicky was was raised on, on, on a ranch and 
Uh, her mother's family were all dairy farmers, for example, and plus they had some Angus and some beef cattle, and she lived out on, on, on one of the ranches that had replacement heifers and some Angus, and, and, uh, and it was, you know, even their standards back then, it, but that was just one of the smaller ranches where her parents were kind of the carekeepers of that ranch, and Vicky, a little girl running over there, about 564 acres, and, and I can remember, and I went many times, and we were, as I told you, we went to third, fourth, and fifth grade together. We've known each other forever. And we started dating when I was 16, and I loved to go out to the roundups and help. And there were all kinds of pregnancy tests, uh, and there were the brandings, and there were other kinds of things they did, too, that we don't have to talk about. But we all get what they do with those things, right? But I always remember that when they would put the brand, and there would be that hot, searing, you know, branding iron, and and there's that ADO. Angelo Domagini, which was her, her, her grandpa. And that ADO, and there's that brand, and it, and it denoted, of course, ownership that those cattle belonged to the Domaginis. Swiss Italian, by the way, if you want to, what kind of a name is that, right? Domagini. And so in any case, we get this, how this works, and, and how this word was, was used in a lot of different ways. The, the fact the New American Standard Bible has, the, the New American Standard has Paul Paul talks about, for a bear in my body, brand marks. That's what it says. Uh, today's English version, the TEV, and uh, a very interesting translation. And, and it says, he says, I bear in my body scars, scars. Because a lot of times, that would be the stigmata. Because you would look at an individual, and there would be a scar, would be these scars. And you know what? Those scars have history, don't they? We all probably have some kind of a scar here or there, whatever. And if it's something that's quite visible, somebody say, well, how did you get that scar? Um, I, it doesn't show up anymore, but when I was a kid, when I was about 16 years old, I was in a horrible bicycle accident and ripped off my exterior here on the left side, my left ear, and, and had to be all sewed up in plastic surgery and everything. That's why I'm kind of cockeyed today. But, but the point is, is that for a long time I had this, you know, and people for a long time said, you know, and the other thing I did, also this was mainly from wrestling, I had all these things, man. I deadened the tooth. That was just as yellow as can be for a long time. Little kids come up, your tooth is yellow. And, I, you know, kids, their honesty is just, anyway, that's another issue too. But these things stand out. And there's history behind them all. I want you to think about the Apostle Paul. You know, when Paul talks about that I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus, he's talking about identification. He's talking about identifying himself and, and, and he may mean it somewhat metaphorically that I bear my body and you look at him because I've given my life to Christ in so many different ways. But I can only imagine and I've thought about, turn, turn over if you would please to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, a passage I know you're somewhat familiar with, maybe very familiar with I should say. But in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, and we'll start in verse 23. And here Paul, I believe in many respects in our text that we're dealing with in Galatians 6, might be referring to his own bodily scars that were the result of the severe persecution and circumstances of which he experienced. And he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 23, he says, Are they ministers of Christ? I speak as a fool. I am more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often. From the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and the day I've spent in the deep. And, and Paul had already, he had already said, bear with me as I speak about my experiences. And he has an intention for doing this. 
But I tell you, here's what I thought about. Can you imagine Paul in his late life of how many scars that must have been on that man's body? You ever really thought about that? Because of those beatings and those stripes and the stoning and all of that. And I'll tell you what, I'll bet you every one of those scars had a fascinating, troublesome history to it. But all Paul wants them to know is that no matter how you look at him, he says, that's why going back to Galatians 6, now from now on, let no man trouble me. For I bear my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. Brethren, I just want to ask you, what kind of marks do we bear? And I'm not talking about stripes and beatings that have produced scars. Though there are those, even our own generation, that have experienced exactly that. But maybe we ought to look at at least, at least, somewhat symbolically or metaphorically for us today. What do we bear in our lives? What do we bear? Do people see in us this identification? Because they look at our lives, they examine our lives from our speech to our conduct to our attitudes. And do we bear in our lives the marks, the identification marks of the Lord Jesus Christ? What stigma is attached to your life? And we're not talking about tattoos or even crosses. You know, I'm just not saying that, oh, well, here, I guess what I could do is I could go ahead and you know, have a tattoo that says, I love Jesus. But that's not what he's talking about. And it's not a matter, and I knew of this preacher in a particular denomination some years ago when I was living up in Northern California that walked around every time, and he had this humongous wood cross that he hung around his neck, no matter where it was, in the grocery store, whatever it was, and here it is, and, you know, and, it's, you know, and I look at that and you think, is that what it takes for identification to, to, to be that kind of a, You know, and I'm not into bumper sticker Christianity and and whatever, but I'm just saying, what are we really talking about? What we're really talking about is character, are we not? What's our character? What's our identity like in that case? I'll tell you this. If what people see in our lives is some form of hypocrisy, a hypocritical life can hurt the family name. A hypocritical life. If we claim to be Christians and we say, I'm a Christian, I'm a member of the body of Christ. I'm a Christian, and yet people at work. I've been in situations where we're talking about somebody, and, and I'll say, oh, yeah, I'm a preacher, and I preach in the Church of Christ in such and such area. And they'll say, oh, okay. And I said, hey, I understand that such and such is, it also works where you work. I'll ask the person. And they'll say, oh, yeah, I know him. Do you know him? I said, oh, yeah, he's a member of the church. And, and I had a situation, this happened more than once, but one time I remember visibly, the guy looked right at me and said in reference to this fellow that's a member of the Lord's church, and work with this guy working, he says, he's a Christian? I want to tell you. I was afraid where this conversation was going, and it didn't go well, because what came out was it's one thing to claim to be a Christian to wear that name, but if you ain't doing it, it's hypocrisy. I love the story. The account is told of Alexander the Great. Military genius. Cried when there's no more world to conquer. But there was a time that Alexander the Great, and as they were making their conquests further and further east in the eastern world, there was a junior officer evidently that was not conducting himself as an officer should. And it just so happens that his name also was Alexander. 
and his superior officer brought him before Alexander. And when it came to the attention of Alexander the Great, that this junior officer's name was Alexander, and he asked him about that, he says, is Alexander your name? And the young officer said, yes, it is. He says, I'll tell you right now, you either change your life or change your name. You see, he did not want him wearing the same name if that was going to be his conduct. Maybe there are some people that claim to be Christians that they ought to look at their own identification and if we're not going to live as Christians, don't just wear a title. It takes us to another thought that when you think about Christ living in me, that's what Paul said. What Paul said, but what that means. That beautiful, beautiful passage also in Galatians in Galatians 2.20. Remember he says, I have been crucified with Christ. Because he's given himself this, this, this sacrifice. It is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. And the life which shall I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. Paul says, the life that I now live, the life, this life I live in the flesh, I live by faith. He says, Christ lives in me. It's all about identification. Again, my friends, it's why we wear his name. We're Christians. And that noble name, though it's only found three times in the New Testament, they were called Christians first in Antioch of Acts 11.26 in a very inquisitive, interrogative, perhaps even facetious way that Agrippa in Acts 26 is almost, you persuade me to become a Christian. But in the final occurrence in 1 Peter 4 and verse 16, we see how exactly how, how it is used. And there it says yet in verse 16, yet if anyone suffers as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this matter, as many translations said, let him glorify God in this name, the name Christian. We are identified. Christ lives in me. We wear his name for a reason. I want to be identified with Christ. I don't want to be identified with a sectarian name, with some religious movement as such. I want to wear his name, and it's why, by the way, I want to advance his cause. Because there is no greater cause. And when Peter and the other apostles even give an opportunity to stand before the Jewish council, the Sanhedrin, as you read about in Acts 4 and Acts, in Acts chapter 5, you read about that. But remember what Peter emphatically said in Acts 4 and verse 12, when they're questioned about how this man had been healed earlier, you know, in chapter 3. But listen to this. Peter says emphatically, nor is there salvation in any other for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. That is the name of Jesus Christ. We need to be identified with him. He lives in us. We wear his name. We advance his cause. And I want to be identified with Christ before anything else, regardless of its importance. But then, enlarge in Christ, and if we really want to grow, individually, personally, we really want to grow, congregationally, I'll tell you what, you've got to put your mind to it, and there needs to be this enlargement, and it is also enlargement by virtue of information, by information. If I wish to enlarge Christ as one of his people, as his disciple, and that's what we wish to do as disciples, information is a must, without question. Information or knowledge is an advantage, especially when we are faced with those who oppose the truth of the gospel. The information, the knowledge of truth, we've got to have that. And brethren, I'll tell you, 
there's just one, there's just a good old-fashioned way to get it. In fact, it's the really the only way to get it, and that's where we got to crack open the book, the book of God, God's Word. we got to know that information. And again, that doesn't happen just by accident. Knowledge. Knowledge of the opposition is critically important. I, I thought about that in so many ways, and, and you got to know the opposition. you got to know the opposition. And Paul kind of alludes to that with a lot of matters that were at hand in Corinth, but in 2 Corinthians 2.11, he puts it this way. He says, lest Satan, unless Satan would have an advantage over us, we are not ignorant of his devices. You know, Satan has devices. He has a methodology. We often talk about the three avenues of temptation, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life that uh, John enumerates in 1 John 2.15-17. But you've got to know the opposition. You know, if we do not have God's Word, if when we absent ourselves from the Word of God, if we just absent ourselves from this, not only will we not have real true knowledge about God and the gospel truth, but I'll tell you what, this is also what tells us what we need to know about the opposition, Satan, and the forces of which he uses. This is where information is critically important. And we're going to enlarge Christ when we have the right information. Knowledge is critically important. And it's got to be accurate information. Accurate information is as important as ever because of the revisionist spirit of those who wish to assassinate the character of our Savior, Jesus Christ. It's happened in every generation. It's going to continue to happen. But you have this worldview, you have this world narrative about Jesus Christ. And, you know, it just came out, just came out in a huge survey very, very recently. Do you understand, to begin with, even with the belief in God, that this country, the United States, has finally tipped the scale enough that we actually have more people that are questioning the belief in God than have the actual belief in God? That's alarming. That's alarming. And there's this revisionist spirit again, this revisionist history, if you will, oh, about the historical Jesus. And I think of all these things, it happened. The Gnostics were doing it for centuries, even for a few centuries after the completion of the New Testament. What do you think when all of a sudden, when they pop up with these, these Gnostic books today, you know, you've heard of the Gospel of Judas Iscariot, for example. Remember back when, when the Da Vinci Code came out and, and all of those kinds of things? And you, you had this revisionist idea of who Jesus is. You know, that's not going to stop. And even once we get past that, trust me, something else is going to come up and there are going to be people redefining Jesus. I tell you, I think of what James wrote in James chapter 2 and verse 7 in reference to these sort of individual. And in James chapter 2 and verse 7, James asked really rhetorically, do they not blaspheme that noble name by which you have been called? That's the name of Jesus Christ that we have been called. And he was blasphemed then and he's blasphemed now. You know, as we think about this, and I I want you to, to realize that with this accurate information, that in Romans chapter 1 and verse 28, as Paul identifies the sins, particularly of the Gentile world, the world at large, but uh, the sins of the world, the sins of the Gentiles. And he speaks about their deviant minds, their deviant minds in Romans 1.28. And he says, these are minds that do not like to retain God in their knowledge and will therefore believe in things and do things which are not proper. Boy, that's all around us all the time. And there's so many people out here, their behavior 
is many times because they just don't have the information about God's truth that's found within His Word. Now, there's some that do, but they'll just act in defiance to it. And we have to deal with that from time to time as well. But as disciples, we must enlarge Christ accurately and be prepared to refute the erroneous portrayals that the world offers. You remember, and it very much reminds me of the, when Jesus rebuked the Sadducees, and he had done both the Pharisees and the Sadducees, as you read about in Matthew 22. But remember, the Sadducees that were rebuked by Jesus and were very skeptical of Jesus, obviously, and tried to challenge him in so many ways. But remember what his conclusion was about them and others like them, the Sadducees and the Pharisees, many others as well. And I love that statement that Jesus made. It, it has such, it's got teeth for today. I'll tell you, it does. Matthew 22 and verse 29, he says, they are mistaken. Remember that? The old King James says, they do err. (laughs) Not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. But they are mistaken, not knowing the scriptures, nor the power of God. It is difficult to be acquainted with every errant view represented in religion. Because there are so many. There are so many errant views about religion and a lot of errant views about who Jesus Christ is. I think sometimes about a quotation that I love that comes from a 4th century Hellenistic, 4th century BC, Hellenistic philosopher by the name of Cratius of Thebes. And I love this. Listen to this very carefully. He says, one part of knowledge consists in being ignorant of such things as are not worthy to be known. There are a lot of things that just aren't worthy to be known. I guess we'd probably be better off just not to be thinking about them or exploring them too much. I guess we need to be able to identify them. But there is a lot of useless information out in the world today, and not necessarily sinful, but still useless. And I wish people had, and even in the body of Christ, there are people, again, they can tell you, give you statistics about the NFL. They can give you statistics about gaming. Uh, I, I, they can just tell you all different kinds of things. And they're Christians, and yet, when it comes to basic scripture, they'll stumble. You know what? That's a choice. So, oh, you know what? I really have a hard time memorizing scripture. I have a hard time remembering things in the Bible, and yet they'll rattle off things like you cannot believe. It's a choice. We look at this, the primary meaning of what we are. In fact, I want us to think about, just to follow this discipline of a disciple. We're disciples. And a disciple is a student, a pupil. Yes, a follower of a discipline. And in John 8, 31 and 32, the classic passage, there it says that if you, Jesus said, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed, and you shall know the truth, and the truth shall set you free, shall make you free. It is imperative. That we are people that are acquainted with his word, which is the repository of truth. His word, the word of God. And only accurate knowledge of scripture can combat the erroneous misrepresentations of Jesus Christ. The assaults that are made against the truth. It's why we do need to be diligent in God's word. 2 Timothy 2.15, the old King James says, study. But but it's the idea, to to, to spadazzo is the word, to make every effort. Why? We want God's approval. We don't want to be ashamed of ignorance and that we might rightly divide the word of truth. You know 2 Timothy 2.15. Do you know who came up? It is attributed to a pope, Pope Leo X, who came up with the expression that a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. That's the 16th century. 
And you think about even the reformation that was going on and the challenge that was given to the papacy and this very idea, well, a little bit of knowledge is a dangerous thing. Why do you think that for a good number of years that the Bible, it was a, a dissuasion of reading and studying the Bible and even Bibles chained to pulpits? The point that I'm making is information is so valuable. Remember the, the warning that was given? In fact, it was more than a warning. It was an indictment. In the Old Testament, the Old Testament prophet of old, Hosea 6.4, and the Lord speaking through the prophet Hosea says in Hosea 4.6, My people are destroyed for a lack of knowledge. Because you have rejected knowledge, I will also reject you from being priest for me. Because you have forgotten the law of your God, I will also forget your children. That's amazing to be forgotten, but then even to be forgotten by God of my children. Brethren, all I can say to you is that's why the best off. The best defense is, is a good offense. Offense is the best defense. It really is. First Peter 3.15 To sanctify the Lord God in your hearts. And do what? Always be ready to give a defense to everyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you with meekness and in fear. To ready to give that answer, to give that defense, to have this working knowledge of the Bible. It's the best defense that we can have. We can't know all the errant views that are out there, I suppose. But I'll tell you what, let us know the truth. But we've got to close this section. And I just want to talk about a couple of dynamics as we go to our last point of enlarging Christ by influence. Influence, influence, influence. You may be sitting there thinking, well, I really don't influence anybody. Oh, you do. We, every, every one of us does. Every one of us does. And disciple is being a disciple. In fact, in discipleship, do you know what example is? It is the application of knowledge. We talked about information, and there's nothing more influential. You see, it's one thing, the information, and it needs to be good information, accurate information to have the knowledge of God's Word. But now, what does it mean when we put it to use and we become examples as we're following after that which is given to us by God, even the pattern that is found within Word? Knowledge without personal application is foolish. Remember when Jesus concluded the powerful Sermon on the Mount with all of these challenges in Matthew's, Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7. And then as he comes to the conclusion of this powerful sermon in verse 24, he says, Therefore, whoever hears these sayings of mine and does them, I'm going to liken to him the man that built his house upon the rock, the good foundation, the good rock-solid foundation. And he says, and when the rain comes down and the winds blow and all those things happen, he says, it stands firm, that house. Why? Because it's based upon the truth. Because you are not only, it's not only based upon the truth, because you are living it. He who hears these things of mine and does it, does them. He said, but whoever hears these things of mine and doesn't do them, I will liken him to the man that builds his house on what? The sand. The shaky foundation, and when those rains come down and those winds begin to blow, he says that house falls flat. And great is the fall thereof. We recognize that. Sir Philip Sidney, an English soldier and poet in the 1500s, said the end of all knowledge should be in virtuous action. It's one thing to have a great working knowledge of God's word. Oh, I, I know the word. But the end of that knowledge should be seen in action. What we do. That's what it's all about. 
Knowledge without application is worthless. And so enlarging Christ goes beyond private spirituality. People say, well, I'm spiritual, I'm spiritual. And, and I'll tell you what, some keep their spirituality pretty private. That's shameful. It must be seen by others in their daily actions. I, and I take you to this very thought in Matthew chapter 5, going back to the Sermon on the Mount. In Matthew chapter 5, in verses 13 through 16, and we see the dynamics that Jesus uses. And he says to these disciples in Matthew 5, 13, You are the salt of the earth. You are the salt of the earth. But if the salt loses its flavor, how shall it be seasoned? It is then good for nothing but to be thrown out and trampled underfoot by men. Then he moves on to another dynamic. You are the light of the world. A city that is set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do they light a lamp and put under a basket, but on a lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Look at his conclusion in verse 16. Let your light so shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. In these metaphors or dynamics that Jesus describes, we have salt and light. And salt is influence. Salt was used for a couple of reasons, especially back then, and not having refrigeration as we have today. Salt was often used to preserve foods, to prevent food from decaying. And all I can tell you is that we must preserve righteousness ourselves today. We must preserve righteousness in a decaying, sinful world. We are to expose the the ungodliness of this world, Ephesians 5.11. Have no fellowship with those ungodly things. Expose them for what they really are. Preserve righteousness. But the other thing that salt does is it enhances flavor, doesn't it? Anybody here popcorn eaters? Like popcorn? Anybody here like popcorn without salt? I know there's always one or two. It's a sickness. Get help. I like eating styrofoam. But anyway... But, you know, salt, we do that to enhance flavor. When you think about that, you see, we need to make life more palatable in the way that we live because of our example, our influence. We need to do that. Even when it talks about our speech being you know, seasoned with salt, the whole idea even there is a preservation as well, but also of something that becomes more palatable. So he talks about you're the salt of the earth. Then he says you're the light of the world, and light also is influence. Christ wants his followers to shine, to be visible and attractive, and not to bring attention to self, but to allow others to see Jesus. So as we look at these two influences, salt is influence, and light is influence, we see this. We are to be light reflectors. In Philippians 2.15, Philippians, back to Philippians, but now chapter 2 and verse 15 as we close. He says, that you may become to these Christians, these brethren they love so much. Chapter 2, verse 15. That you may become blameless and harmless, children of God, without fault in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world. I think the NIV talks about shining as stars in the universe. (coughs) We need to be light reflectors, but it's the light of Jesus Christ. Brethren, all I can say is, we've got to bring this to close, is that, and my final question for you at this time is, is my influence consistent with the identity that I claim and the information that I share with others?
there is a correlation with all three. And so as a Christian, Christ is to be the most important influence in my life, in your life. And I just love the statement that Paul made as we began. He says, Christ will be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. Make no mistake, others are going to recognize our true spiritual identity when they just view us, when they just watch us, when they just hear us. If we're going to grow and we want to get where we need to be, we've got to enlarge Christ. That is the essence of Christ-centered commitment. I thank you for your good, good attention. We're going to be taking a break and uh, just appreciate that. We good? <laughs> okay, we do have a prayer at this time too, so all right. then. Uh...